0: Please stand with me for the reading of God's word.
1: Matthew 6, 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Matthew five thirteen through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... Colossians 4, 5 through 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. James 3, 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts,
0: Good morning, family of God. Hey, I want to pray one more time. Would you bow with me? Our Father, it's such a gift and such a joy to be able to call you Father, to know that you love us. And we know that because Jesus came for us. We've been adopted by grace. We thank you. We praise you for that. Lord, I want to ask for your help right now. Would you send the Holy Spirit in a powerful way to teach us this morning? We need to be transformed by the renewal of our minds as we meditate on your word. So would you help me to speak with humility, with courage, with clarity in a way that is faithfully unfolding the meaning of your word for your people? Would you help all of us to hear with faith, to trust Christ more when we leave here today, to love Jesus more? And to be filled with wisdom that comes from you. So that we can faithfully fulfill your calling in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today we are starting a new sermon series called Public Discipleship. And this sermon series is going to be probably four weeks. And it's a response to... Many things, but the biggest thing is just a lot of you have been coming and asking me and other pastors in our leadership team questions about how do we represent Jesus well in the public sphere, in my workplace? How do I represent Jesus Christ? And how do I represent Jesus when there's conversations happening around me about big social issues, cultural issues? What does that look like for me? And the Bible has a lot to say about this, so we're going to dig into it. And today, we're going to introduce this theme of public discipleship. The title of today's sermon is Spiritual Wisdom in the Public Sphere. And to get us started, I want us to note a tension between two things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the Master. He's the Teacher. He's the Savior. And notice this tension. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 which Morgan just read to us, says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And then, if you skip down in your bulletin, you'll see a a verse that came a few verses earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works... And give glory to your father who is in heaven. Do you see the tension there? Jesus says, don't do your works of righteousness in front of other people to be seen by them. And Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they'll see your good works and praise God. Now, how do those two things fit together? That's the starting point for our reflections this morning and. Here's really the big, I'm going to share two big ideas with you today, but I'm going to spend most of the sermon talking about one of them. And here it is. The new relationship that Christians enjoy with Jesus transforms both our private lives and our public lives. Through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, God's kingdom is invading every corner of reality with transforming grace And that includes both the intimate details of my personal life, what I do in secret, what I do in private, and the public events that are happening in my culture and in every culture. Thus, to be mature disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to cultivate the practices of humble faithfulness in private and bold witness in public. It's not either or, it's both and. That's the big idea. So if you wanted to sum it up, we're just trying to unpack this statement that recurs throughout our New Testament that Jesus is Lord. Everybody say Jesus is Lord. Lord. And Jesus is Lord, not just of one little sliver of reality, but of all aspects of reality. The Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper says there's not one square inch of creation that Jesus cannot look to and say mine. Right. He's Lord over everything. As a matter of fact, the great missionary theologian Leslie Newbegin spent a lot of time in India. And then when he came back to uh, the West, he, he started talking about the fact that he feels like in Western culture, Christianity has been syncretized in a lot of destructive ways. You know that word syncretized? It's what happens if you mix Christianity with other religions and other ideologies. And he says, here's the way. One of the big ways that we've experienced syncretism in Western culture, he says, we have bought into this lie of West, modern Western culture that religion or spirituality is for private life. And there's this other space, public life, which is neutral and you want to keep religion out of that. He says, biblical Christianity says Jesus is Lord of all. That means he's Lord of our private lives. And of our public lives. So it's both and. Now to help us unpack how that could possibly work, let's take a second to dig a little deeper into these statements of Jesus. Read with me one more time, Matthew 6 verse 1. Let's read the whole thing. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. A few key ideas here. Everybody, you have a Father. God is your father if you have faith in Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. You and I have sinned. We've rebelled against God. And yet Jesus, the son of God, came to die for our sins and rise again. So if we trust in him, now we have a relationship with the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he becomes our father. So everybody say our father in heaven. Our father Father loves us. Our father cares for us. And Jesus is here teaching. We need to learn to live for an audience of one. We need to learn to live for the smile of our father in heaven. And as he continues in Matthew chapter six, he teaches us three spiritual disciplines that he wants us to practice in secret. So he can talk about secret discipleship. He talks about secret generosity, secret giving to the poor. He talks about secret prayer and he talks about secret fasting. And you can go read it this week if you haven't read it in a while. But some of you will remember, Jesus says, when you give to the poor, don't make a big deal about it. He says, "Don't." Sound trumpets for us. That means don't go paste, post on Instagram about it, right? I was so humbled today to recognize my great privilege, and so humbled to realize how awesome I am by helping out this, this these other people, right? Don't do that. That's how the world does. I don't. If I'm gonna do something nice for somebody else, I want a plaque in a prominent place. Jesus says no. When you help somebody out, keep it secret. Why? What's the point of that? The point is, you're training your soul, you're training your heart, not to just do stuff to impress other people, but to please God, your Father. He says the same thing about prayer. When you pray, he says, don't go stand on the street corners and lift up your hands and make loud, long prayers so everybody will think you're so religious. Now, Jesus is not against praying in public. He prayed in public and he taught other people to do that. But he's teaching the spiritual discipline of secret prayer. He says, go in your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Listen, friends, even if you don't really believe God hears and answers prayers, you might still have reasons to pray in public because you want your friends to think you're spiritual. Right. But if you don't really believe God hears and God answers, you will not spend a lot of time alone praying. This is actually one of the marks. If, if you want to do a spiritual diagnostic, how much do I really trust the word of God? Just ask yourself how much time you spend alone praying. You don't tell anybody about it. And if you're struggling to trust God, he's saying you need to exercise those spiritual muscles because you're going to get there. Anybody who's ever tried to spend extended time alone in prayer knows it's hard work, right? Your mind starts drifting everywhere and you start getting discouraged. You start thinking God doesn't hear you. And maybe you try and spiritualize it. I got to get up and go read my Bible, or share the gospel, anything but just pray and secret. And your mind starts wandering. It's spiritual warfare. And Jesus is teaching you to practice that discipline of staying on your knees. Continuing to cry out the Lord. Don't beat yourself up when your mind wanders. Just pray about whatever your mind wandered to. And then come back. Focus your thoughts on the Lord again. So that we can cultivate spiritual authenticity. I'm spending time alone with God. Same thing with fasting. Jesus says don't make a big deal out of and show everybody how much you're fasting. Fast in secret. What is the the point of this instruction of Jesus? Well, the point of those spiritual disciplines is he's teaching us about humility, isn't he? Don't practice your spirituality just to impress other people so they'll think how great you are. As a matter of fact, wouldn't it be great if we just developed a church culture where we thought we love everybody, we appreciate everybody, but we're not impressed by anybody? I'm tempted to do the thing where I tell you to turn to your neighbor, but now you're going to say not impressed. Let's just do it. Everybody say, I'm not impressed with you. I love you. I love you, but I'm not impressed with you. Now, that doesn't mean I don't admire you. It doesn't mean I'm not encouraged by you. But let's just say we're not trying to impress each other. We're not trying to impress each other. Listen, if you say good long prayers, that's great, but I'm not impressed. Right? <laughs> uh, we just need to we just need to recognize we're all people who have sinned, but we're all people who are loved by God. We're here by grace. We're not trying to impress each other. And we need to practice these spiritual disciplines. If we do this, it teaches us humility. It teaches us about living for the audience of one. I want to please God. And it helps us to cultivate spiritual authenticity instead of uh, slipping into the hypocrisy of fake religion. Isn't fake religion ugly? Don't you hate it? I don't want to waste my time trying to convince other people how religious or spiritual I am. And yet it's so easy for that to creep into our hearts. So Jesus says, practice the secret spiritual disciplines. Read your Bible alone, pray alone, fast alone, be generous alone, serve others alone. Don't make a big deal out of it for the sake of integrity. He teaches us those spiritual disciplines. And that's so important. I agree with the statement of the the 20th century Christian writer G.K. Chesterton, who said private lives are more important than public reputations. That's true. Private lives are more important than public reputations there's lots of people who can teach and explain christian ideas well but integrity and spiritual authenticity is another matter and jesus is teaching us to cultivate that spiritual integrity and authenticity and this truth though needs to be held in relation to this other statement that jesus had just said right before this in matthew 5 as a matter of fact we might see what jesus is saying in matthew 6 As a counterbalance, because back in Matthew chapter five, he had taught us that discipleship, Christian discipleship, following Jesus is by its very nature public. So let's let's look back at Matthew chapter five, and I'm going to read to us one more time. Verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Jesus is teaching here that his disciples need to imitate his example by giving their lives for the life of the world. Jesus gave his life for the life of the world. Jesus gave his life on the cross so we could be forgiven and reconciled to God and so that we could participate in his mission of redemption by giving our lives for the life of the world. Salt and light, he calls us. Notice Jesus does not say you should be salt. Or you should be light. He said, you are salt. You are light. In other words, Jesus is stating something about your Christian identity and then saying, live it out. Act like it. Remember your identity. So everybody say, we are salt. We are light. Jesus has left us on planet Earth. He did not zap you to heaven when you became a Christian. And he has left you here for a purpose. To know God and enjoy Him and glorify Him and to make Him known through your words and deeds. Let's talk about these two metaphors for a second. Metaphor of salt, metaphor of light. Now, salt has many functions today and in the ancient world. Of course, salt flavors things. Its primary function in the ancient world was as a preservative. You still know this. If you put enough salt on beef jerky, you can leave that thing sitting in your drawer for a long time and it doesn't go bad, right? Um, You don't have to put it in the refrigerator. But now we have... All sorts of refrigeration, so we don't use that as much. But salt was the primary preservative in this context. As a preservative, what it did was keep things from going bad. It kept the rot, held the rot at bay. Preserves what is good and keep away decay. In the same way, Jesus is teaching every Christian who's trusted in Jesus Christ and been forgiven of Their sins is a citizen of God's kingdom, an ambassador of God's kingdom. And wherever God has placed you, he has put you there to preserve what is good and healthy in the world and to hold the rot at bay. So if you're at your workplace or if you're in your neighborhood, or if you're hanging out with your friends and you identify as a follower of Jesus and you're trying to obey him, it may start in simple, subtle ways. People may be a little less likely to gossip around you. If, if you're a Christian and people do that thing people always do in their culture where they say, oh, I'm sorry, I cussed around you. Don't be like, oh, no, man, doesn't matter. You can be as profane as you want to recognize. Hey, this this is just like a little manifestation of what Jesus is talking about. But at a deeper level, if you're working within whatever space, healthcare or education or you're working in your warehouse or you're working in your office, maybe you're a stay at home parent, but you're building relationships with the families around in your neighborhood. Your example of faithfulness holds the rot at bay. It makes it less self-destructive sin in the world. It encourages righteousness and it opens up people's hearts and minds to then hear the words of truth from the gospel. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. We talked about light and darkness a lot over the Advent season, didn't we? The light of God in the Bible is a frequent symbol of God's truth, of God's holiness. To dwell in darkness is to live in chaos and to lose hope. When the light of God's truth and grace and holiness comes, it brings peace and order and hope. Jesus himself is the light of the world. We were dying in darkness, but Jesus came to rescue us and forgive us. And now Jesus says, when you have a relationship with me, you're filled with my light. And you're supposed to shine that light back out into the world. I want you to think especially of what Jesus says about the city on a hill. Look at this. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, once again, I think the power of this metaphor is somewhat lost on us modern people that have electric lights everywhere. Because everywhere we drive, there's street lights, there's headlights. And most some of these people in this room have you've lived out in rural communities and you have some idea of what real darkness is about, although you probably had flashlights and porch lights and all that kind of stuff. But if you lived out in a rural community in the time of Jesus, it was dark, dark, dark. And if it happened to be a, a waxing moon or if there happened to be clouds blocking the moon and the stars, you could be so dark that you I mean you can't see your hand in front of your face. But if you live in sight of one of the big cities, even in the ancient world, there's torches that are lit. And if it's set up on a hill, you could see that landmark from miles and miles away. You would otherwise be stumbling around in the dark. It's easy to lose your bearings. But if the city is set on a hill, you could see that and you know which direction that is. It also illuminates for, for the far reason. We can think of this now. If you want to see the stars, you've got to drive a long way from Oklahoma City, don't you? That's because that city up on a hill shines light for a long way away. What Jesus is saying here is the light of Jesus in your heart and in my heart is supposed to shine publicly. That's not about us and our glory. As a matter of fact, he makes it quite clearly clear here. Whose glory is it about? That's right. Look again at verse 16. Let your light shine before others. Let your light shine before others. He makes it clear what that means so that they may see your good works. Everybody say good works. He wants you to do good in public so that others, people outside of the community of disciples will see it. And what are they going to do? Give glory to your father who is in heaven. This is not about giving glory to you. That's what Jesus warned against in chapter six. This is about worshiping God, your father in heaven. But the works are public works. So Jesus is teaching you need to learn how to live faithfully with your words, telling people the truth about the kingdom of God, with your deeds, bearing witness to the reality of the kingdom of God through your works of love and justice and faithfulness so that you can have an influence in the world so that people can be drawn to the light of Christ. Now, we've got to ask the question, what does this look like? What does it look like? It can look like a lot of different things. I already gave examples in your personal life. When you go to work, wherever you go to work, Most people are probably going to be gossiping and slandering and complaining about their boss and trying to get home early. Right? Amen. (laughs) That's what happens in every workplace. Which means if you just have a good attitude and you're kind to people and you speak well of others... Your good works are having salt and light, but it can go much deeper than this. You can think, what if the Christian community is a community that faithfully cares for widows and orphans and the poor and the immigrant and the disabled, where they're treated with dignity and respect? We care for those folks within our own community, within our own church family, but also out in our neighborhoods and in our families and workplaces. Wouldn't that be a powerful light? And if as we're doing that, we're bearing witness to the truth of Jesus, telling the reason for the hope that we have. Now, that's a powerful influence. I want you to just think about this, though, not just in relation to your individual life, but into our community life, our life together. So everybody, we want to put a we on it. Everybody say we are the light. Are the light. Here's the glorious thing. Christ Community Church is a little bitty baby church. We're a small church in a uh, by Oklahoma standards, a big city. So there's a lot of people. In, in Oklahoma City, Metro, and we're a small church. But here's what's amazing. I'm saying this to give glory to God and to encourage you. There's a lot of people in this church who are doing good work with excellence in our city, in a lot of different areas. And because you, in whatever your different area of service are, are consistently serving other people in a way that's countercultural and doing so with excellence, it is not uncommon... I mean, we've been here for a decade and it has not been uncommon over that period of time for government leaders, mayors, senators to come to Christ Community Church and say, hey, would you talk to us about how we can honor the dignity of human beings better in relation to this issue of education or of immigration or of health care? It's not uncommon for very... Uh, wealthy business leaders to say, hey, we want to steward the resources God has given us to bless the vulnerable. Could you talk to us about how to do that? Well, that's a disproportionate influence. The glory for that goes to Jesus, because the reality is God and his grace is working through you and he's working through you in a way that is much like what Jesus said in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven. What's it like? It's like a little mustard seed. It starts small, but it grows and it spreads, and its influence can be great. There are lots of people who have never heard of any of our names who are benefiting today from the salt and light influence of this community because of God's grace working through your faithfulness. Isn't that good? Now, we can also take inspiration, I think, from Christians throughout history who have been good at this. One of them is on the screen behind me. That's a sketch by Raphael of the Apostle Paul in Athens. If you don't remember the story, go read it later today in Acts chapter 17. Notice I said later today. I'm going to give you a framework right now. I want you to listen for a second. Um, in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is in Athens. This is the intellectual center of the Western world at the time. Much like Rome is the political center. Paul's going to go to both of those. But here he is in the intellectual center of the ancient world. And he's been preaching and sharing the gospel, so they invite him and say, Hey, we, we hear you talking about Jesus and the resurrection. They actually probably thought that the resurrection was the name of a goddess. But they brought him and said, We hear you talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Tell us about this. And Paul gives this brilliant speech, which has become famous, in which he starts by affirming what is good in this pagan culture. He says, I can tell you're very religious. And you. as I walked around, I even saw an altar to the unknown God. That's good. Now, let me tell you about that unknown God, who he really is. He's very diplomatic. He's wise. Wisdom is one of our key words today. Everybody say wisdom. He has spiritual wisdom. He's not trying to pick a fight on the surface. But then what he does is in powerful, humble ways, spiritually subvert the whole system of the people he's talking to. Let me tell you about this unknown God. First of all, he's the creator of heaven and earth, and he does not dwell in temples made with human hands, which means the whole pagan religious system of the Greco-Roman world and all of its exploitation, economic exploitation, is invalid. That's what Paul is saying. He does not dwell in temples made with human hands, and he's not far from any of us, but in him we live and move and have our being. By saying that the creator is distinct from his creation, but is actively involved in it and is near to us, he was subverting the Epicurean and Platonic and Stoic philosophies that were dominant in Athens in subtle ways that I don't have time to get into right now. He says he's close to us. And then he says he has sent his servant, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Everybody say it's all about Jesus. The son of God, he sent his servant, Jesus, by whom he will judge all, all people, which means Not only does the Greek intellectual and philosophical tradition not have the last word about truth, but the Roman political system does not have the last word about justice. Jesus will judge all and he's authenticated Jesus to us by raising him from the dead. That's the resurrection. So not only does Roman political life and Greek intellectual life not have the last word, but death itself doesn't have the last word. It belongs to Jesus. And he said this at a time when there's just a handful of Christians and they're a persecuted minority. This was not just apologetics, by the way. If you get called in front of the leading figures in Athens for preaching foreign divinities, you might get executed like Socrates did a few centuries before for misleading the youth and preaching foreign divinities. That's why they killed Socrates. So this is a moment in which at a high risk, Paul, as the spokesperson for this persecuted Christian minority, bears public witness that Jesus is Lord of all. He's going to get killed by the Romans, but he had this foresight, by the grace of God, I don't know what he imagined it looking like, but he knew that Jesus was going to be Lord of all. And as it turns out, over the next centuries, the gospel was going to spread like yeast through a batch of dough throughout the Greco-Roman world, such that, but you know, by the time three or four centuries more passed, You could have a pastor like Ambrose of Milan who could call the emperor to repentance for abusing his power in violent ways. And instead of the emperor executing Ambrose, the emperor has to do public penance before he's accepted back into the fellowship of the church. So that's that's powerful. Now, we can move to the modern era. And I've got some pictures of people. If you've been around Christ Community Church for a while, you've probably seen pictures of of most of the people that are or you've heard me tell stories about most people that are coming up on the screen. I'm just going to briefly talk about them to talk about what could this look like in the modern era if we're talking about public discipleship. Anybody recognize this guy? Good try. That's William Wilberforce. <laughs> William Wilberforce. Um, Was born into political privilege. He became a member of parliament in the 18th century. And shortly after he became a member of parliament, he converted and became a Christian. He thought, I've got to renounce the political life in order to go follow Jesus and be a missionary somewhere. But he sought counsel from various people, including the prime minister, William Penn, and John Newton, the great pastor and hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace. And they said to him, listen, I'm paraphrasing here, Wilberforce If God put you in Parliament and then saved you, maybe you're supposed to be salt and light in Parliament. And William Wilberforce sought the face of God and ended up feeling convinced that he had a sacred vocation from God to fight the good fight within Parliament. So he maintained the secret spiritual life. He did stuff like everyday walking to work instead of riding a carriage so he would have time to quote the whole Sermon on the Mount on the way to work keep his mind focused on Jesus. But over the next decades of struggle, he was the primary instrument that God used to bring down the slave trade in the British Empire. And not only that, but he advocated for um, the eliminating cruelty towards animals. And he advocated for the... Uh, putting reforms on the abuse of women and, and prostitution, which was rampant in, throughout London. And he supported stuff like the Church Missionary Society, taking the gospel to India. But he used that position of political power. He stewarded it for God's kingdom. Let's go to the next picture. Here's somebody that you might not recognize, but you should learn about her. This is Pandita Rumbambai. And she was born uh, after... Uh, William Wilberforce into India, and she was born to a Brahmin family, so she was high caste, and yet she was born into a Hindu culture at a time in which women were treated very poorly. Almost no women got any education, and uh, many times women were betrothed and married to other people as a kind of political or economic bargaining tool while they were still children. But she had a dad who saw her potential. He educated her, taught her Sanskrit, to read it and write it, and so um, she became well-known for being very smart. And after her dad died, she was an orphan when she was 16. But her and her brother would travel around quoting the Sanskrit Hindu scriptures. Over time, uh, she gained some influence and began starting schools to educate women. And she began arguing that the practice of marrying off children was unjust. Through this women's education and women's rights advocacy, she became well-known and eventually traveled to England to talk about what she was doing. While she was in England, she met some Anglican nuns. And the Anglican nuns told her stories about how Jesus treated women. About Jesus. Just imagine, if you're coming from Pandita Ramambai's background, hearing stories about how Jesus treated the woman at the well. Jesus' friendship with Mary and Martha. How Jesus treated the woman caught in adultery. Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And she was so struck by this that she converted and became a Christian. She went back home And she kept doing her work in the spheres of education and women's rights advocacy. But now, as she was doing education, she knew if she just started doing open public evangelism all the time, she would be persecuted and shut down. But in her education work, she had people read Hindu scriptures next to Christian scriptures. And she had a deep life of prayer, praying that people... The, the eyes of people would be opened to see Jesus. Many of them, many of these women started trusting in Jesus and she started a prayer movement where they prayed for a revival in India. Not only is she still known as the greatest women's rights activist in India, but through her slow, patient, shrewd, wise witness, thousands of people eventually came to know Christ. Now I'm going to go real quick to the next one. What about this woman? We talked about her a couple of weeks ago, Mother Teresa. We talked about her because of her Life of prayer, her secret private discipleship. But out of the secret wellspring of her private relationship with Jesus came a life of service to the poor, which was so incredible that it gained the interest of the world. She became one of the most famous people in the world and got invited to speak to influencers all over the world. And all she did is come and talk about Jesus and the love of God and prayer and caring for the poor. Or what about this guy, Billy Graham? He went the other way. He started out as an evangelist out of the wellspring of his deep personal relationship with Jesus came a care for the souls of others. So he went around preaching the gospel. And as you can see, he was packing out stadiums to preach the gospel. And eventually, not only did the Lord use him to lead millions of people with, for Christ, but he leveraged that influence in a way that supported the work of Dr. King in the civil rights movement. He, he started a... Uh, nonprofit organization that would bring relief to the poorest of the poor and he had a tremendous influence not only in the spiritual life But the social life of people all over the world wherever he went finally here's one of my heroes y'all know this guy That's dr. John Perkins. Let's just have a moment of silence. I love dr. John Perkins He's not dead. He's still alive just to clarify that uh, I just I just love dr. Perkins, but um, John Perkins Grew up child of a sharecropper in the deep south, faced intense racism. He did not want to have anything to do with Christianity in his early days, even though he was taken to church, because he thought and what he heard was a Christianity that said, you can go to heaven one day and until then you can have private comfort, but it had nothing to do with the public life of the world. So he thought this is just a tool to keep people oppressed. But later, when he got out of Mississippi and went to California, people shared the real gospel with him. He trusted in Jesus Christ. He was empowered by Jesus Christ to see his life in a new way. He ended up going back of Mississippi primarily to do the work of an evangelist. But as he was doing the work of an evangelist in Mississippi, he kept seeing people he was leading to Christ being oppressed during the heat of the Jim Crow South and then the civil rights movement. So he starts organizing protests and boycotts to try and advocate for justice for all people. This earns him pushback. He gets tortured almost to death by white police officers. But on the platform of his integrity and his suffering, he comes to have an influence. At this point, I've lost track. He's got like 10 or 15 honorary doctorates. He's been advisors to several presidents. And he's been able to have a tremendous moral influence. Now, here's the thing, church family. We are not the Apostle Paul. Amen. We're not William Wilberforce. Anybody on the Senate so far? Maybe I missed something. We're not any of those people. We're not trying to be them. But what we're trying to do is be faithful where God has called us and where God has called us. He's called us to be salt and light in this place. And what I want to encourage you today is that through your relationship with Jesus can come a wellspring of spiritual power and wisdom that then can be projected out into the world in a way that makes a massive difference And the life of others. Now I'm almost about out of time here. So I'm not going to get to say much about Colossians and James. But let me just draw your attention real quickly to those last two texts that were in your bulletin. And here's the second point. I told you my second point was going to be real brief today. If you're going to faithfully bear witness to Jesus. In the public sphere. This is going to require tremendous spiritual wisdom. It's going to require tremendous spiritual wisdom. Everybody say wisdom. You're going to have to look different than the world. What we're not trying to say is, Christians, go be as loud and brash as possible. And that's going to influence the world. It's a bad idea, folks. If you want to have a faithful witness in the public square, what you need is spiritual wisdom. And spiritual wisdom is going to look like being transformed to be more and more like Jesus. So let me briefly, just real briefly, touch on these texts and encourage you to dig into them more this week. First, look with me at Colossians 4, 5 through 6. Walk in wisdom. You might circle that word. Everybody say wisdom. And when you hear walk in wisdom, we're talking about a lifestyle here. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Now, you might want to underline outsiders. Paul means when you're Christians, when you're relating to people outside of the church. So that's about public discipleship. Outsiders is talking about public discipleship. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time of the season of opportunity that you have right now between the first and second coming of Jesus Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Here's what's amazing about this. He's saying not just tell the truth, but he's saying tell the truth with grace in a way that is wisely steered towards sensitive witness to each individual person you're talking about. Now, if we want to understand what that looks like, we can recognize that Paul also said just a little bit before this in the book of Colossians, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus. So we might as well say it again. Everybody say it's all about Jesus. So what he's saying is let the your relationship with Jesus and let the good news of God's grace through Jesus Christ so penetrate your heart that when you relate to people, there's a sensitivity and a grace a, a boldness that is at the same time gentle courage that is loving so that people see the grace of Christ flowing through you. Now, the same point is being elaborated on in James chapter three. I'm going to read it real quick and just make a couple of comments before we wrap up. Who is wise and understanding among you? That's the question. So we're talking about wisdom. Everybody say wisdom. But in these next few verses, James is going to he's going to. Contrast. It's not a comparison and contrast. It's just a contrast. Contrast real wisdom and fake wisdom. Now. You'll notice as we go through this fake wisdom equals what gets you the most likes on social media. That's one way to put it. So if we're going to say don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, at least in terms of like political stuff, right? If you want to say, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, what we're saying is, friends, we've got to learn how to be civil in a society that is often not civil. We've got to learn how to love our enemies, even when we disagree with them in a society in which the politics are so often the politics of hate. So listen to the difference between real wisdom and faith wisdom. By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. So he starts out by saying If you want to be thought of as wise, you need to look not just at what you say, but at your lifestyle. And it's a lifestyle marked by the meekness of Jesus Christ. There's an integrity and a gentleness and a love and a faithfulness to it. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder, And every vile practice, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The contemporary English version actually translates that last verse better. And it says peacemakers who plant in peace will reap justice. Peacemakers who plant in peace will reap justice. Now, here's a few observations here. As James is contrasting between true wisdom and fake wisdom, he contrasts the source. True wisdom is from above. That means it comes from God. You get it by hanging out with Jesus, by reading the Bible, by praying. We could connect this to Matthew 6, 1 and say, if you want true wisdom in your public witness, that starts with the integrity of your private spiritual life. True wisdom is from above. Fake wisdom, he says, is earthly, unspiritual and demonic. In other words, he says fake wisdom is the wisdom that you see in our three spiritual enemies, the world, the flesh and the devil. It feels right to our sinful nature. It looks right when we compare it to the surrounding culture. But really, it's demonic and it's destructive. So the source. Is contrasted. Second, the motivations are contrasted. The motivation for fake wisdom is really driven by jealousy and selfish ambition. I just want to be right. I just want to be respected. The motivation for real wisdom, summarized especially in in verse 17, you could sum it up by saying real wisdom is motivated by a desire to glorify God and bless other people in a manner that is shaped by the truth. Justice, humility, and grace, as we see them in Jesus Christ. And finally, you can contrast the outcome of true wisdom and fake wisdom. Fake wisdom's outcome, we're told, is disorder and every vile practice. The outcome of real wisdom, we're told here, is peace and justice. So everybody say shalom. Wisdom in the Bible is connected to shalom. And what we're saying here is this. Sum it up as we get ready to go to the Lord's table, friends. Jesus died on the cross for our sins so we could have a relationship with Jesus. And that relationship with Jesus transforms our private life. We learn to live by fellowship with Jesus Christ, intimate, secret communion with him. But that teaches us a wisdom that then gets carried out in the way we relate to people, love, prudence, discernment on display in an intentional public witness through our words and deeds. And when Christians do that faithfully, just like those examples of men and women that were on the screen, the harvest is peace and justice for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this truth of your word. And I pray as we continue to meditate on this word and as we respond to the word by going to the Lord's table, that the gospel of grace would transform us through the inside, from the inside out, Lord. Please, I pray that increasingly... You would make us a holy, humble people who live for an audience of one. That we live to please you. But I also pray increasingly that you would make us a bold and courageous people. Who bear faithful witness through our words and our deeds. In a way that helps many to come to have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that also brings God's peace and justice into our city, state, nation and world. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen.